Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We're continuing in the fourth chapter of Acts. and I've entitled my sermon, Prayer in the Time of Trouble. In the passage that we are referencing this morning, there is a prayer. It's the longest prayer in the book of Acts, but it's not a long prayer. It's just the longest one in that book. And there's some interesting things about this prayer. I think has some very valuable uh, benefits for us if we'll just give some consideration to this today. Let me read in the 23rd verse. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you've made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant and Father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your words with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders to the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I won't take long to set this up because if you've been following this, you probably already know the background on this. So very quickly, Peter and John have been arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin because they were involved in the healing of the lame man at the gate called Beautiful at the temple. Sanhedrin was thoroughly disgusted with them carrying on this public ministry and disapproving of them doing anything in the name of Jesus. So they scolded them and warned them, do not do this anymore in the name of Jesus and sent them away. When Peter and John came out, these people, their friends, the, the, uh, uh, no doubt people who had been uh, getting saved in this great revival and uh, the, the, the Christian, the, the, the spiritual family that surrounded them were waiting to find out what happened because they were not in there and they couldn't hear the trial going on, but Peter and John come out and they gave them a report of all that went on in there. And then the Bible says they prayed. Now, it's interesting the way this is stated because it says, they all raised their voices and they prayed. But then there's one prayer here. So one is probably left to wonder if you study that very closely. Did they all really together say that whole prayer word for word and how did they do that? Well, one answer to that would be it would certainly have to be a miracle for them to pray that kind of a detailed prayer. And 
say the same words together, which is probably not what happened. We don't outlaw God's ability to make anything happen, but that's probably not what happened. They all prayed, but Luke recorded the, the, the prominent prayer that was given there. So it's very possible they all prayed, and when it died down, somebody, the main speaker, took over and prayed this very beautiful and eloquent prayer. Now concerning this prayer, there's, there's a few things that I just want to observe and uh, maybe challenge us with. The early church had now in this, in this very, uh, their, their very early existence, now met resistance to the work that they were called to do. And then when the Jewish leader told them, whatever you do, don't do it in the name of Jesus. And a very quick point here is, I think everybody here is going to agree, any message of any worth has Jesus in it. Any message of the kingdom. If you take Christ out of the message, you don't have a message. So for them to suggest you go and preach whatever you want to preach, but don't you preach in the name of Jesus, don't you teach about Jesus, then they don't have any business doing anything. The message of the kingdom is Jesus. Let's make an application to today. I do have a deep concern about what's going on in the 21st century church. I do know that there are a lot of messages being preached that are no longer biblical and they're not centering on Jesus. And it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's a total waste of time. You might as well have stayed home. You might as well go bass fishing on Sunday. I don't know, find something to do. But if they're not going to preach the word and they're not going to preach Jesus, it's just a social club. We're wasting our time. Now, Peter and John having been brought before this, this Sanhedrin, obviously refused to comply with the demands of the Sanhedrin not to preach in Jesus' name. So they went out, having been dismissed, the Sanhedrin not exactly sure what else they could do to stop this because now the word had spread and now the crowd was building outside and the lame man was obviously there and it was an obvious miracle and they couldn't stop the support that they were gathering for this. They might have caused a riot if they had tried to. So they decided at this point, let's just warn them and send them away. And the fellow believers were relieved to see Peter and John actually released and they heard the details of what had happened in the trial, and then they raised their voices together and prayed. And the fact that they raised their voices together should be of interest to us. How many of you have been in a Pentecostal church most of your life? There are certain distinctions of what we would traditionally historically, at least in modern day times, call a Pentecostal church. We used to describe the Assemblies of God as being a Pentecostal church and telling people, that means when you come into a Pentecostal church, you might expect to find these distinguishing features. You might find more freedom in worship than you would in other more reserved churches. Now, I think a lot of churches are coming out of that 
reservedness and becoming more open in worship. And so that's no longer as unique as it used to be. But within my lifetime, it was pretty easy to walk into a church and distinguish it immediately from being a Pentecostal church or being a non-Pentecostal church. One of the distinguishing features of the kind of Pentecostal church I came up in is when we prayed, we prayed. When it says here that Peter and John came out, they all lifted their voices and they prayed. That was what would, you would typically associate with a Pentecostal prayer meeting. Everybody prayed. But we, we don't see that as often today as we used to. I'm going to ask you to vote again. How many remember when Pentecostal churches prayed like that? But then when I moved out to California and pastored a couple of churches out there, I took my Midwest Pentecostal upbringing out there. I said, we're going to have prayer meeting. And I came and came down to the altar, and man, I was I was praying. I was praying. That's what we came to do. I came to pray. And I noticed nobody else was praying along with me. And what happened was I went into a different culture out there that I was disturbing them. They couldn't pray because I was making too much noise. So I had to back off and pray silently so they could pray silently. But the, the fact of the matter is, as you hit these different cultures, some, some people that act of, of everybody lifting their voice and everybody praying made people nervous. They didn't want to do that. So out in California, I'll tell you right now, their habit was everybody pray one at a time, just pass it around. I kind of had to adapt to that for the years I was there. They didn't want to pray all at once. Now, is, a, is it right or wrong? It didn't make any difference. I'm just telling you that these people came fresh from Pentecost they were excited about God. They were enthusiastic about touching God. Nobody taught them how to be Pentecostal. They didn't have any customary traditions to try and emulate. They just came out, and Peter and John were released when they thought they were in deep trouble, and these people said, let's pray, and everybody prayed because they were involved. They were invested in this, and somewhere... Amidst this, this noise of prayer, there was one prominent prayer that stood out. I enjoy the noise of prayer. It doesn't make me nervous. I like to hear people pray. I have watched some videos. Uh, for the past many years, Brooklyn Tabernacle has been a very popular, well-known church. They have a, a wonderful Pentecostal church out there. I mean, it's, it's huge, the famous Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir has put out some phenomenal songs and some videos. But when they have prayer meeting, when they have prayer meeting and the people gather together and they just turn to one another and they grab somebody and they, they begin to agree on something, I'll tell you, the noise of prayer fills that sanctuary. You know these people believe in and practice prayer. So I don't think it's really out of biblical order when we pray to pray. These people did. I find inspiration from that. And the second thing we see uh, in them gathering around and, and uh, 
supporting Peter and John is the benefit of having the support of brothers and sisters when we go through our trial, just like we did back here. When a few people raised their hands and said, yeah, I'll pastor, I'll, I'll pray with you on a hot issue today. But when they found out what it was, uh, almost every one of you moved back there because there's a great benefit to having the support, spiritual support of brothers and sisters who believe in the power of prayer and we care about what you are going through. Peter and John should probably be considered members, at least members of the spiritual leadership, if not the spiritual leaders of this group at this point. At the very minimum, minimum, they were apostles. They walked with Jesus under his mentorship for three years. So they were probably, as far as uh, the, the pecking order is concerned, they were probably somewhat the spiritual elders, the spiritual leaders to these people. They were the spiritual giants. But look at what these spiritual giants did. They walked out and they sought the prayer of the others. Anybody who belonged to the family, they wanted their prayers. They trusted their prayers. They weren't so arrogant as to say, now look, we've walked with Jesus and we're kind of up here and you're down here. We don't need your prayers. They needed their prayers. I need your prayers. I might be the pastor, but I need your prayers. That's my fuel. There have been many times in my ministry where I've just gone down and said, folks, folks I, I need prayer. Come and pray for me and let the people gather around and pray because I know the power and strength of having people love and support me through that. So if I need prayer, don't we all need prayer? These people bound themselves together in prayer for Peter and John. There was no, no, no evidence in this narrative of any spiritual elitism. They needed one another. Now I want to actually, with that little introduction out of the way, I want to actually get into the outline of my sermon, which is don't, it, don't, don't worry, it's not going to be as long as you think it's going to be. And I want to talk about this prayer. The very first thing that they said, and my first point in my sermon is, I want to talk to you about the sovereignty of God. Because the prayer begins with this powerful tribute to God. Oh, sovereign God. This was a very unique prayer opening. They used a word that was not commonly used to refer to God. It was a very common Greek word. It was a common word used in that Greek culture that referred to the supreme power of Caesar. It was a word, a word that they used to recognize Caesar as being their God, basically. And there were other instances in Greek classic Greek that they would use this word, but the Christian world, the religious world, had not typically used this word. They, they often used the word kurios when referring to God, which is a good word, Lord, but they didn't often use this word, word despotes, D-E-S-P-O-T-E-S. And if you are listening and thinking, you're probably already thinking, I wonder what that has to do with our word despot. Well, we get our word despot from that. But 
our definition of despot doesn't go back to their time. So just we have a negative connotation of despot today, it doesn't apply to that. But the word despot was a very powerful word in Greek that were referred to somebody to whom they acknowledged had supreme absolute oversight and authority. So the Christian world saw this as a word that they, the world used to refer to their Caesars and and their uh, potentates. And they said, that's one of the best words we can use to redirect it back to God. We want the world to know if they think that Caesar is the despotes, we want them to know God is the true despotes. He is the supreme ruler over all. So they start off with this, oh, sovereign Lord. This belongs to God. And the fact that they use that, I think is emphasized by the fact that these, what these people had just come through You know, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the great revival that's breaking out, all the things that they had seen, all preceded by the miraculous resurrection of Christ. And all of these things are phenomenal things that obviously we don't see every day in modern day Christianity and in our church. We don't see the kind of outpouring they had that day on the day of Pentecost, although we call ourselves Pentecostals and we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, but wow, when's the last time that there was a great mighty rushing wind miraculously sweeping through this building? When's the last time we turned around and saw tongues of fire sitting on the heads of people? I mean, these people have seen things that have just left them in awe and in wonder. And then to see Peter stand up and eloquently preach to them and and call from Old Testament passages and receive an anointing he had never had before in his life and just come into his own as a minister and then to see people respond to this and begin to call on the name of the Lord and they shared with others who called on the name of the Lord. They began to count it up. Thousands were being converted into Christianity. And with all these things happening to us, when they stood there, they said, let's pray. The very first thing they thought of is the person, the one being who made all of these things happen and all they could just do is just say, oh, sovereign God, how do things like this happen except by your sovereignty and your power and your authority? So the use of that word was a great tribute to God for all the things that they had witnessed. They were amazed at what they had seen. They were amazed at all he was doing. Have you ever felt like that? Now, just kind of search back through your life, but don't get so distracted you don't hear what I'm going to say. Have you ever seen God do something so marvelous, so miraculous that it just brought out this praise of glory and admiration for him right at that moment. You saw it and you just had to stop and say, oh, sovereign God, who else could make this happen? See, I've had those things happen in my life. 
I think there's others here that have had that happen. You've been astounded at what God just did. I've seen him do those things in this church since I've been here. And we're just struggling along and, 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 and trying to figure out which way do we go and what do we do. And then suddenly God just brings it all together. And I just back up and say, oh, sovereign God. That couldn't have been anything but you. When we capture a glimpse of his power and his majesty, it causes us to have to declare the sovereignty of God. When, when Moses went on to, into Sinai and he, and he came in contact in, in this almost face-to-face, he came down out of the mountain with his face glowing. He was transformed. That was this, oh, sovereign God moment for Moses. When I, Isaiah caught a glimpse of God and, and his, his holiness, his purity. It was an oh sovereign God moment where this holy, righteous man of God finds himself crumpled to his knees and saying, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips standing before that kind of purity and power and holiness. He felt himself to be nothing but a worm. It was an oh sovereign God moment. And when the psalmist studied the night sky and just began to appreciate the beauty of creation, he wrote this down. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you've set in place, then he said this, what is mankind? that you are mindful of us. It was a, oh, sovereign God moment. Now, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, that word that depicts him as all-powerful, all things under his control, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, it gives you reassurance that this sovereign, almighty, omnipotent being ruling over all throughout eternity, that this is the one that you are trusting, this is the one you're believing in, this is the one you're relying on, that he is indeed reliable. It's not an empty, vain hope. We're looking at the one that has more than just a little bit of experience in what he does. He's been doing the God thing for eternity, which don't get me started down that road because it hurts my brain. When I go back as far as my finite mind can go, and then I discover God's already been there for eternity, I tried to take the journey again, and then I just short circuit. Poof, like they say, the head blows up. Eternity. He's been doing this for a while. When you want to know something, you want to go find somebody who's got some experience. You want to pick somebody's brain who's been around for a while and say, what do you think about this? Well, listen, sovereign God's got that. He's got some experience. He's fully qualified to be my superintendent. 
He's fully qualified to watch over me. After all, anybody who survived that long surely understands how to handle any calamity that we may encounter. So I'm saying if you believe in the sovereignty of God, it ought to be the most reassuring thing to you. God's got it under control. If you fully believe that God is sovereign, you put your fully trust in him, you don't worry, you don't fret, unless you just choose to unless that just has become your good hobby. But it's totally unnecessary because it doesn't help your cause because we are serving the sovereign God. The next thing I want to notice about this prayer is it is infused with Scripture. I'm not suggesting we can reduce prayer down to some kind of a formula that if we do this every time we pray, it's going to make the perfect prayer. Jesus did give, it a temp- give us a template for prayer, but just reciting that prayer is not what he was intending when he prayed, uh, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It was a template. It was to kind of help us to understand what kind of relationship, what kind of things we can praise God for, what kind of things we can ask God for. So when I'm saying that he infused this with Scripture, I'm not saying that all of our prayers always have to invoke Scripture. But I can tell you this, it was a good prayer. And it was valid to pray this prayer and to revert back to Scripture because here's kind of the way the prayer goes. Oh, sovereign God. And then when you start calling up scriptures, you're saying, I read in your word. I remember in your word where you were able to do this. And it builds your faith and connects your prayer to God saying, you have a history. You have a record of being faithful here, of being able, being capable. And putting that in your prayer is a very good addition to prayers. Don't be afraid to reinforce your prayer with the testimony of scripture. So the one praying says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? In other words, let me take that portion of scripture and, and reword it like this. He's basically saying, with reference to these people who are fighting their ministry, he goes back and quotes from the Old Testament and he says, Lord, like they said in the Old Testament, these people are wasting their time trying to fight against you. You are bigger than they are. They can't beat you. Why are are they even doing this? Why are the nations raging? They are helpless to change. You're on the winning side. And so why is he saying that? Because he wants to remind himself that the Sanhedrin who is fighting against him don't have a chance. When the church in its early infancy back then was fighting against people who wanted to stop it and Christians today are 2.1 billion of the world, they didn't stop it. They couldn't stop it. The Sanhedrin couldn't stop it. Nobody could stop it. When they say, why do the heathens rage? Lord, they're fools for trying to stop your work. Nobody will be able to stop it. The third point is in this prayer, notice the petitions. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Before we deal with what they prayed for, 
let me make quick mention of what they did not pray for. I think that's very notable. Because I, sometimes I try to insert myself into that situation. And I try to imagine if I were there with my 21st century mentality, what would I have prayed? What would you have prayed? I think there's a good chance that we in our modern mentality would have come out from the Sanhedrin trying to stop this work and we would have had a number of people pray about this situation. I think there would have been at least one person with our mentality today. I think there would have been one person there that would have at least said, Lord, stop them. Lord, crush our enemies. Lord, wipe out the resistance. Lord, prevent them from preventing us. Lord, conquer those who are trying to stop your work. Yeah, is that unreasonable to think that we would probably pray that amongst all the things? These people, Lord, are trying to stop us. Just wipe them out. Lord, bind them up. You know, we're all the time binding things. I bind up the spirit of resistance. And will you notice in this prayer, nobody prayed that. Not, not that was recorded, not that was worth mentioning. It wasn't important in the prayer that somebody pray for God to stop the enemy. The, the enemy's going to keep going. You know what they prayed for? They just, I guess they just assumed this is part and parcel of what it means to live for God. I know a lot of times when we pray, we pray for God to take away the troubles we're having. I understand that. I get it. I don't like troubles either. I've prayed that many times. But you know what they prayed? Give me the strength to get through whatever's coming against me. Lord, consider those threats that they made against us, and they didn't say, make the threats stop. They said, give me the boldness to keep preaching and doing what I'm supposed to be doing in spite of their threats, in spite of what they do to us. See, we can pray for other people to change their actions, their activity, their attitudes towards us, but it may not change. But how about you? Have you prayed for God to change you? Give me the strength, God, to be faithful to what you've called me to do. I wish God would come down and just lift all of the uh, opposition that we face. I haven't found him to do that very often. But I found him giving me the strength to get me through it. Lord, stop the persecution. That'd be nice. But Lord, give me the courage no matter what comes against me. The second thing they prayed for is to God to continue to work his divine power through them. They did not shrink away from the fact that the healing of the lame man ignited this whole debacle. They didn't say, well, you know, if we want to survive, we probably had not ought to be healing people in the public anymore. 
Maybe we should back off from those things that anger the authorities. But they didn't say, Lord, do it again. The very thing that got Peter and John in trouble, they said, God, send some more of that. It may cost us plenty to minister like that, but Lord, that is what is impacting this world, is the power of God. Lord, signs and wonders, let it follow our ministry. Let us not shrink away from ministering in your name. Point number four. God answered their prayer. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. There's a confirmation here. I like confirmation from God. I need confirmation from God. I don't know about you, but I'm going to guess you're probably a lot like me because we're all human. I pray, and I just want to know God actually heard me. Theologically, I know he did. But I just like him to speak on my level as a human and reassure me it's okay, I've got it. I like that. I don't like to have to walk totally in this blind faith of saying, I know God hears everything, and, and uh, there's no way I could pray and him ignore me. I... It's so comforting, it's so reassuring for God to send a confirmation. And God can do that. And it's, it's not wrong to ask God to confirm. It's like, it's a little frustrating for us even as, uh, as humans communicating with humans. You, know, you, you call somebody and they don't answer their phone anymore. You always got to leave a message. Then you don't hear back from them for a day or two or three days. Then you got to call them up, did you get my message? At least tell me you got your message. I've sent emails. Then I had to send an email to ask if you got the email. You don't hear anything. I want confirmation. I want to know that this thing actually got to you and your eyes read it. I pray. Then I go away. I say, I know he had to hear me, but it'd sure be nice to know that he's confirmed. I got your message. So we pray, Lord, just give me a sign. That, that's a legitimate cry of human heart reaching out to God for reassurance. And God may not. And he certainly does not respond to every prayer request by shaking the room. He's never shook my room before. But he can give you just the word you need, just the sign you need at the time you need it. And that, how, that happens often. People just come to church. They hear the sermon, and something confirms in there that's exactly what I was needing. Right at this moment, this is a confirmation. This is what I need. You don't always need an answer right away. Sometimes confirmation is enough to carry you for weeks or months or years just to know that you've been confirmed. 
it might be a passage of scripture when you're struggling. So, Lord, I'm praying. I don't know if you're hearing. I don't know if you've got a plan. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if I'm unworthy. I don't know if I've got to fix something before I pray next time. And you pick up the Bible. You open it up and you read and there's your confirmation right there. Ah, got it. I'm good to go now. Second thing we read after they prayed, the place was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit is the empowerment that comes. They were again filled with the Holy Spirit. We saw this happen previously. Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and then they began to speak with wisdom and power that impressed the Sanhedrin. Where did these men get this? And then you come to this prayer meeting where they prayed and they were again filled with the Holy Spirit. Reiterating what I had said before, that one time filling a long time ago is not going to get it. We need an ongoing, daily infilling of the Holy Spirit and situational infilling of the Holy Spirit. First and foremost, I urge you from what we have studied happened in Acts Always keep the understanding, the the concept of God's supreme sovereignty before your eyes and on your mind. That's very, very important to your communication with God. He is sovereign. He is able. He is over everything. Secondly, pray for the strength and boldness to carry on. Not necessarily that God removes that difficulty. Remember when Paul said, I've been given a thorn in the flesh? I prayed three times for God to take it away, and he wouldn't do it. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. So we might pray to remove the problem, but ultimately you're going to need the grace to get through, whether he does or doesn't. Third, you might look for a confirmation. It'll carry you. And number four, just wait for the answer. God hears and answers prayer. Worship team, would you come?